The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Sovereign One, we thank you for determining that we would be here in this moment right now, in this room, before you and before this portion of your word. Because your hand is over all that, we trust that you are up to something. And so then we ask you, will you, in your wisdom and power, grow your church? Will you press this into us and accomplish your purposes? Will you change Deepen, strengthen, widen, bring conviction or encouragement, whatever, whatever is necessary, whatever you know you are doing, do it, please. Build your people. We are so grateful that we can come and we can talk to you. We can make requests of you knowing that you're here and that you are committed to our good. You're working to bring glory to yourself and to bring good to us. So please do that. Shape us this morning. Make us effective for you. Help us to understand our purpose in your, your kingdom and in this time. And deploy us into that purpose powerfully. Lord, help. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So please teach and shape. We trust ourselves to you and say thank you, Lord. Amen. A little bit of ringing. We tend to gauge the value of what we are doing by reading how others receive it. You spend most of this Wednesday prepping food and then half of Thursday cooking it, you will have given yourself to something. And then if, from the end of the table you hear, eh, turkey's dry again. And that one over there is just basically picking at everything. And this one over here just straight up says, why couldn't we have just had tacos? I like tacos. you will feel not good. Maybe a little frustrated at the rudeness of it, but you'll also be perhaps a little bit discouraged, even demoralized, if everyone is so indifferent or even hostile to all these efforts. Well, you know, I'm not going to do that again. It's just not worth the sacrifice. It's not worth it. Why bother? We, we think like that in life. We, we, we do things, and then we look at how it's received, and we kind of evaluate, is this worth it or not? We can think like that in life, and we also can think like that in our spiritual lives. And in a way, that's what connects us to the passage before us today in the middle of Matthew 11. Last week, at the beginning of the chapter, we saw John the Baptist in prison asking Jesus to clarify something for him. Are you, in fact, the Messiah? He's been preaching that, he's been, he's been stating that, but things have not been working out like he thought they would be. And so he's beginning to wonder, he's a little bit uncertain. So he asks, and Jesus replies, reassuring him, look at the evidence, look at all the evidence. I'm the one. The day has dawned, the day of the Lord has dawned, and it is beginning. I'm doing the things, I'm doing them. I haven't done all of them, but I, I will finish the work that I've begun. So stick with me, trust me. Says that to John. And this morning, essentially, Jesus adds on for us, and that, that goes for all of you too, Christian. Goes for all of you. You're here now, and even if you're not quite in the middle of something so hard as what John was facing, you're here now, at, at least in the middle of how's this working out? I don't know. I've been I've been assign something. I'm here on a, a purpose, on a mission, as Jesus has been talking about, but as I kind of read the room and I'm getting the feedback from the people all around me, I'm just not sure that this actually is, at least I'm not doing it right, I don't think, or maybe it's not really even worth it. People don't seem to care. And Jesus is saying, you're in the right place. You're you're, you're in the right purpose. You're, you're sticking with me. I, I know it's not well received, but that's okay. I'm up to something. Hold with me. Hold fast in faith. 
That's what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew 11. So I'm going to read the passage, verses 7 to 19, and then draw out two observations from it. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 7. As they went away, that is the messengers from John, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who is ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. You sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Matthew 11. Two observations. Here's the first. Our great purpose underline great there. Our great purpose is to point to God's glorious grace in Jesus. Our great purpose is to point to God's glorious grace in Jesus like only we can. Verse 7, John's messengers leave and Jesus turns to the random crowd that's all around him. And there are so many verses and details here that it's it's kind of important that we just not get lost in all the weeds here. You see kind of the big picture where this is going. John, Jesus is going to be talking about John here so as to lift up John. He's kind of elevating John. And that's because to elevate John, as we're going to see, is to elevate every Christian. So that's, that's where he's going with this. He's, he's coming around to us, but first he's, he's talking about John in a very complimentary and, and elevating way. So verses 7 to 9, John's not a wishy-washy or fickle person like, like some blown-around grass or some dressed-to-impress influencer or something like that. He's, he's a prophet, just like you thought. He is, in fact, a prophet of God. That's why you went out to listen to him in the desert, after all. And in fact, he's more than a prophet. He is also, verse 10, the fulfillment of a prophecy. John's the one that Malachi 3, verse 1 is about. The messenger sent before the way of the Lord to prepare for the Lord's coming. Malachi 3.1. In, in a sense, that's what John already was saying. We, we saw this back in chapter 3 where John was preaching in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's what he was doing already. But Jesus kind of raises the ante here by saying not just that's what John was doing, but that's what the Bible predicted would happen, and John's that one. Malachi is a really important book in the whole of the Old Testament because it's the last one. Malachi is the last prophet in Israel before what was known as the 400 years of silence. Israel was very accustomed. Everybody could identify. Everybody knew who the prophets were. There's all these prophets coming and going over a long, long time. And then the last one comes, Malachi, and then nothing for centuries. And Malachi's last note struck is there's going to be a prophet to come, a messenger to come before God comes. 
And that, the reverberations of those words, just kind of go out and die down and go to silence for four centuries. You gotta feel that moment. God is going to come. The Lord is going to come to his temple. And before he comes, a great prophet. 400 years, nothing. And then John speaks in the wilderness. And Jesus says, that's him. That's the one. That's the one Malachi was talking about. The one who was to come before the Lord comes, before the great day of the Lord. Or to put an even sharper point on this, not just Malachi 3 verse 1, but Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. And you could probably look at this if you wanted to, if you had a Bible, because it's only like 5, 6, 7, 8 pages before our, our chapter 11 here, because it's the very last page of the Old Testament. The very last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4 Verses 5 and 6, before the great day of the Lord comes, I'm going to send Elijah again. And Jesus says, down in verse 14, John's Elijah, if you know what I mean. He's not literally Elijah. Elijah did not return to earth. John is a guy named John, but John is a prophet like Elijah. He's the Elijah who, when Elijah preached in power, he turned, he called for repentance of the people of Israel. That's what John's going to do. This one is that one. God was going to send him, send him before the Lord came, and that's who he is. John's Elijah. Now, don't get lost in all, all of that. There's I mean, you can look back at that passage, you can look at those two different passages in Malachi, and there's, there's allusions to many different things here. Don't, don't get too focused on that and get confused by it. The, the point here is that Jesus is connecting Malachi to John and saying, John's the one that God was talking about in the last note struck in the Old Testament. And we need to see that so that we understand Jesus' comments as they begin to turn towards us in verse 11. So look at verse 11. Because of all this, truly I say to you, among those born of women, that is, people, people born of women, among people there has arisen, up to this point of Jesus speaking, no one has come forth who is greater than John the Baptist. None greater than John. Which doesn't mean no one greater in miraculous power or no one greater in authority or holiness or something. The, the Old Testament's full of people who might surpass John in one or multiples of those categories. It means something else here. Greater in what sense? What was he just talking about? John is the greatest of the prophets because he's the one also prophesied about. John got to preach about and predict the coming of the Messiah. Well, verse 13, so did everybody else in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament, all the, the prophets and the law were all pointing towards this coming king and this coming kingdom. The whole Old Testament is about that. And everybody from Adam on in a thousand different ways, giving a thousand different details, are all pointing forward to the king and the kingdom. So, point towards, towards Christ and who's coming. And so, John's a part of that too. They're all like building blocks, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, adding in, kind of like climbing up a, a mountain to get to the ridgeline so you can look over the top and to see the kingdom in, in the valley beyond. John predicted his coming also, and John was the one predicted to be the final predictor, the one at the very top who could grab the ridgeline, so to speak, and go and see over. Everybody talked about him, John included, and then John got to lay his own two hands on him. 
Everybody predicted this one was going to come, and then John got to see him with his own eyes. John got to watch him walk into the water. John got to see the Spirit descend on him and heard the voice from heaven saying, this is the one. So John says, this one's coming, and then John says, and this is the one. Nobody else got to do that. Nobody else was in that spot. John's got this really unique place. He, he can grab them, he can embrace them, and with awe, he can say everything that was all, all that was about Right now, here, amazingly important, one-of-a-kind unique, John was born to be that person right there. No one greater than John. Now, continuing on the verse. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is really, really interesting for you. You might not find it interesting, but it's interesting for you. It means something really interesting for you. Kingdom of heaven. What, what this passage is getting at is that there's, there's a pivot here. John is a pivot. If you use that image of, of climbing up to the top, there's, there's a ridge line there. The watershed goes one way and then goes another way. John's a threshold. Verse 13 says... And the footnote, if you, probably, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that gives a little bit better way of reading this. The kingdom has been coming since John, all the way up till now. So from John on is the kingdom coming. In the next verse, before John, up to John, the prophets and the law testify about the kingdom that was coming. John's this pivot point. He's a threshold right in the middle. Up to him, prediction, after him, the kingdom comes. And so every single Christian, every single little old ordinary nobody's ever going to hear your name Christian is in the kingdom on the other side of the pivot greater than John. Which means greater than everybody in the Old Testament. You are greater than Moses. You are greater than David. You are greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah combined. How can that be? How, how can that be? Not greater in value, not greater in miraculous power, not greater in holiness, not greater in authority. How was John great? That John, greater than all of them, not just talked about the coming one, but actually got to put his hands on him and point him out. You're greater in that sense. John got to put his hands on. John saw the Spirit descend on him. Christ, by his Spirit, lives inside of you in a new covenant way. You know him far better than John did all of his ways and his character, his person, and his being. You are very unique in this way. John can talk about, John actually says of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and John has no clue whatsoever about how that happens. John doesn't understand the cross, not one bit. John does not understand how it is that sin can be taken away, not, not one bit. And so John, of course, never saw the resurrection from the dead, that not just the, the cross, but he dies, but he rises up again and defeats death. He puts it to death for us. We're raised to new life with him. And John never saw Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. John didn't see any of that. And you know it all. And know it all personally and intimately. Not just reading a book. It's in you. You know what it's like to live under the reign of Jesus. You know what it's like to have sovereign wisdom that is full of amazing grace. You know what it's like to be, to be steered and controlled for your everlasting good and for the glory of God. You know tons more. And not just know, you know. You've tasted and seen the goodness of God in a way 
foreign to the entire Old Testament. John walked you right up to Jesus' house. John knocked on the door. John opened the door. John shook Jesus' hand. And you walked in and sat on the sofa. And John looked in, and the door was shut, and Herod took him away. You're sitting in the living room. You are privileged with a purpose. Why did God birth you right now in this? Why did, John, why did God birth John in John's spot? To make him the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy and to point out Jesus. And God birthed you today, right here, right now, to be greater than John, to know, to taste, to see, to experience, to know, and to show. Just like John. You're a Christian, you're far greater than John, and you've got a far greater purpose than John. You know far more than John knew, and you walk around in the world today knowing far more than everybody you're standing next to knows. You know God. If you're a Christian, you know God. If you're a Christian, you actually know Jesus. You can hear the world. The world, the world talks about God all the time. The world talks about praying. The world talks about Jesus. And no insult intended at all does not know what it's talking about. Just factually doesn't know who is actually behind those words. You do. The world talks about heaven. The world talks about the afterlife. The world talks about things that are wrong and talks about forgiveness and talks about virtue and, and does not know what it is talking about. Doesn't know who it's referencing. But you do. On purpose, by God's design. His sovereign hand puts you right here and has introduced you to all these things that are obvious and simple and clear to you, it, it's sometimes perhaps helpful for us to stop and realize we talk about things between ourselves, we, things roll around in our heads that are foreign concepts, improperly defined or completely unknown. And here you are. You're in this world today and nobody else in your office has a clue about what you know. Nobody else in the classroom, nobody else on the bus, nobody else on the team, nobody else in the club, nobody else in your neighborhood. The odds are really high. Now it could be, and you know we have these conversations where sometimes we'll say, ah, oh, so-and-so at work is a Christian. And the reason you say that is because that's unique. Most of the time, all of the so-and-sos at work are not and do not know, have not tasted and seen, have not experienced, do not know Jesus. And do not know how to be made right with him. Do not know what he is about. Do not know what is coming at them like a freight train. Clueless. And people must know this or they perish under judgment. Ignorance is not bliss. Because the Bible is really clear that not knowing the answer, we do know the problem. We are all part of the problem. The problem lives within. The, the beginning part of Romans, before it gets to the gospel, the beginning part of Romans is explicitly making clear. It doesn't matter if you were born Jewish or if you were born Gentile. Everybody breaks God's law whether you've actually read God's law or it's just inside of you. Everybody on earth knows I shouldn't lie, and they lie. I shouldn't be mean, and they are mean. I shouldn't take what's not mine, and they take. Everybody on earth knows that. Everybody on earth breaks God's law, and most people don't know the solution that God has provided for that, but you do.
to know him personally yourself. It's the reason that you were born and are here right now and here now still. To know him personally yourself, to experience the glorious grace that God has provided only in this Jesus. To know it personally yourself, to live in it, to soak it in like a sponge takes in water, and to know the joy of the Lord, to, to, to bask in it, to soak in it, to be filled with it, to, to embrace it, to... Ah, glory. And so blessed, then to be a blessing with that. So informed, to inform others. All of this work of God is culminating in, in over centuries. It, it pivoted at John, and you live on, on this side of it. Not by accident. On purpose. And so that does a very large part of defining what we are to be about right now. To introduce, to, to soak in and to live in, to see and, and, and to be so shaped by and then to, to live it out, to introduce people to this one who is the only hope of the world, the only lover of human souls, apart from whom there is only wrath. This is important. Jesus has been talking about it now for a few chapters and it's kind of coming to a head right here. And it should come to us not only as burden and obligation, but he means for it to come as privilege. You're greater than John. Not more obligated than John. You're greater than John. More blessed than John. More privileged than John. Because you can do more than John. Sent as laborers into the harvest... We're sent to be fishers of men. We've been seeing that now for several chapters, and Jesus is saying, and that is a tremendous privilege. It's what I'm about, and you with me are about that too. It's your purpose, greater than John's purpose. So, obviously we're going to talk in a minute about how, how the world receives that, but before we get to that, it's worth just stopping here to say, like, do you ever think like that? I think, instinctively, most of us think through the first part of that and stop. And what happens there is we take in, we soak in like a sponge. We soak in, we soak in, and it's a little bit like we, we park ourselves at a table and we eat and we feast and we feast and we eat and then we have some dessert and then we snack on the leftovers and then we feast more and then it's time for dinner and we eat a little bit more and we feast and we eat and we eat and we feast and we, and we take it in and we take it in. And what happens to a person who does that? You get bloated and you start to not feel very good. You become unhealthy. I read, I actually listened to an audio book Years ago, I think I might have mentioned some sermon before sometime, but I listened to an audio book that was one of the books of the Laura Ingalls Wilder series. I can't remember the name of the book, but in the chapter, he was describing, the writer was describing the morning breakfast, the morning meal, it, you know, oh, dark 30 breakfast. And as she listed off all of the stuff they ate, I almost had a coronary listening to it. All the stuff they ate for breakfast at like four in the morning. How could you eat all of that? And the answer is because at 4.30 in the morning, they went to the field and worked 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 and then had a massive lunch and worked 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 to dinner. Calories in and calories out is fine and good and healthy and makes for a strong body. Calories in is bad. And most of us, I think, have understood half of this. We, we take calories in to taste and see that the Lord is good. What a blessing it is to live on this side of, of the ridgeline, to live in the kingdom of God under the rain, to know Jesus dwelling inside of me. Glory! 
the, the, the echo of Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. I'm all about that. His glorious grace poured on me and poured on me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you stop right there. And if you stop right there, what we are in danger of is this. It's meant to come in and pass through. I'm here to receive and to give. Our purpose is to know far more so that we can give away far more. Not so that we can just only enjoy far more. We sometimes feel this frustration in life of, uh, that, that is really this, the, the luxury of the person parked at the table not feeling well. I don't know if I can eat another one of those. This is, this, the turkey's a little bit dry. Hey, there's turkey, come on. It's food. Abundance. Calories to give away. If we thought like that. So it's worth stopping right here to say, I'm greater, if you're a Christian, if you're a genuine, true Christian, then you can say to yourself, I'm greater than John and everybody else in this two-thirds of my Bible with a purpose, assigned a great purpose. Do I embrace the purpose? I'm not saying that the, if, if yes, then you will find yourself with a megaphone parked on a corner somewhere shouting. No. We've talked about this a bunch of times already, that the way that we labor in the harvest is going to be different for every one of us. But in some way, coming in needs to go out. Coming in needs to, needs to be expressed in some way or another. We're all going to be different. Laboring in the harvest. Are you in the field? Are you just at the table? We receive this glorious grace, we, we take it in, we, we praise God for it, we surrender to it, we, we are built up by it, and then we give it away. And as soon as you do that, of course, immediately you're going to realize, man, not every, I'm giving, but not everybody's receiving. And that's a problem, which leads us to the second observation. We have a great mission, a great purpose, a great commission, which is where Matthew, of course, ends his gospel. We have a great commission assigned to us, but not everybody is that excited about all that, which is the second observation. This purpose of ours will be attacked and disdained and vindicated in the end. This purpose of ours will be attacked and at least sustained and vindicated in the end. You've got a great purpose. What can incline us away from that? Well, surely at least here, here's one thing. And Jesus has been completely honest about this for chapters now. A lot of persecution discussion in chapter 10. We're speaking in the immediate context of John being imprisoned, and Jesus did not say that was a mistake. So he's honest here once again. Let's look at verse 12 which can be a confusing verse. I already mentioned that the best way to read it is how your footnote has it. The kingdom has been coming, but that word violent there kind of throws us for a loop. So it's, it's worth coming at this verse. It, it's confusing. You can read lots of people kind of wrestling with it, but it's not nearly as confusing if you remember a few things. First of all, read it as the footnote has it. But second, remember the context. He's been talking for a couple of chapters now about eight and nine. Jesus arrives in power. Remember the main theme of there was authority. Jesus is coming. He's, he's a king coming in authority. And what he's doing is moving in ways that are remarkably forceful. And then chapter 10, but of course, there are powers that are against that and persecution will happen. John the Baptist, chapter 11, being a great example. That's the context that helps. And then lastly, it helps to know a little bit about some grammar forms because the word violent, you see it here, probably your translation is violent. It's in two different forms in this verse. 
It's helpful to know a little bit about some of the grammar forms here. The second one, the second usage there, it reads, at least in mine, and the violent take it by force. That usage, the second one, that form is quite clearly a person or people that exerts force or power. And that form in the literature where it appears is always negative. It's always bad. So violent it fits. As we understand violent, we often think of something bad there. So attacking, those ones they are attacking, those ones they are seizing, those they, they are taking in a bad way. Like Herod took, seized John and put him in prison. Like the previous chapter, the persecution will see Christians seized and hauled before judges and seized and thrown in prison. So the second half of this verse is pretty easy to understand. The kingdom is going to be persecuted. Certain ones will come violently against it. That's easy enough. But the first part's a little more challenging, maybe. Is the kingdom being violent right back? Are we to take up arms? No. The grammatical form of that word here in the first part of the verse, an exertion of force or power, can be bad but it can also be neutral. Like I might say, he attacked me, but that'd be bad. But I could say, he attacked that problem. That might be good, actually. You need to know the context to determine which way to read this. And Jesus is more getting at the, the neutral form of that here at the beginning. There is an attacking going on. There is a moving of power and authority here. He just said that in chapters 8 and 9. Jesus is a king after all. When he arrives in sovereign power, demons flee. Weather submits. Disease is cast out. Death is attacked and overcome. Jesus is attacking the problems, not the people, Jesus is attacking the problems. That's a good thing, actually. The kingdom is coming in power and might. And it is, in a bad way, attacked. That's what he's saying. Which is actually just what we've already seen in this context. And, and John the Baptist's exact problem John's in prison thinking, shouldn't that be one or the other? If the kingdom is coming in power, well then, that's that. But if the kingdom is not coming in power, well then, then of course the powers of darkness win. But what you're saying, what, what I'm seeing here is that the king has come and darkness is fighting back. It seems kind of like there's a battle going on here. That can't be right, is it? And Jesus is saying, actually stating it as fact now. That is exactly how it's going. Look at all the evidence. I have come in power. The kingdom is advancing in might. And evil ones are attacking back. Both. That's what's happening and I think that as we look at that and, and kind of process that for ourselves, what we should, I want to set something beside here, but acknowledge it. We should, we should point out, as has been said repeatedly in, in these chapters here, what that means as the kingdom advances and power comes against it is that there's going to be pain. Persecution will happen. Talked about that a bunch of times already, though, so I'm going to set that aside and not touch that one again, though we should just be aware of it. But I think what this verse here in this context, and especially also 16 to 19, what it contributes that's a little bit different here this morning, is that all of this, this advancing and fighting, this, we'll talk about in 16 and 19, it can be just tremendously discouraging, confusing and discouraging. It kind of make you wonder, why bother? It seems like 
The kingdom advances. We take two steps forward, advancing in power, and then it's like one and three-quarter step backwards as the evil forces come in and seize our gains and haul them away. And then there's three steps forward and one step back, and another step back, and then two forward and three back, and, and it's, I'm not even sure, are we up or are we down here? It's, it's kind of hard to keep track. It, it's backwards and forward all the way through life. The kingdom is advancing, and then it seems like it's losing ground. And back and forth, it's totally confusing and kind of frustrating. I thought that if the king were to arrive and the kingdom were to advance in power, that we would win, right? Or at least consistently, clearly, obviously gain the upper hand. Be winning. But I can't quite tell as I look around. Are we winning or losing? It's kind of a mixed bag of results, it would appear. And that can be disappointing. When I, when I give myself to something, I step out there, and what I find is maybe I'm in jail now, maybe I'm dead now, or at the very least, I'm laughed out of the room. Why bother? And then add it into this 16 to 19. Interesting passage. Jesus, speaking to all the crowds around him, describes them, and therefore the rest of the whole world, really describes them as petty, fickle children. That's the world. Petty, fickle, childish which I recognize, if you're not a Christian, you hear that, that could be insulting. Well, I'm trying to be faithful to what Jesus is saying here and watch how he, watch why he says this. It's as if God says to the world, what do you want? And the world says, not John, somebody more like Jesus. Actually, not Jesus, many more like John. Well, which is it? Just somebody else. Just somebody else. Any, anything else. Anything other. I certainly don't want a message that is, that is sober-minded and straightforward and clear, pointing out what is wrong in the world. I want something that's fun and delightful and gracious and kind. But I, I don't actually want something that appears irreligious and flippant and and lets people get away with stuff. I want somebody who's going to like punish the people that I want punished. I just want, I want what I want, actually. I want what I want. And don't bother me with any of this discussion. You know, what, he grabs John and the Son of Man here because he is the Son of Man. He was just talking about John. But what's going on in John and the Son of Man is don't bother me with what John's doing is John is the fulfillment of a long line and John's pointing to the Messiah. And that, that whole long line has lots of discussion about prophecies fulfilled, has lots of miracles performed. I, I, I really just don't want to hear about that. And, and this Jesus here, this, this part is, is about something that that speaks to the issues of the human heart and makes you go, hmm, sounds whole and right, but then it's going to poke me and say that I'm the problem, and then he's going to go to the cross, and you're going to talk about this evidence that the tomb was actually empty, and he rose from the dead. I, I really don't want to hear about that either. This is where the world is. Don't bother me with the facts. I don't want to be bothered. I want John to be gone. I want Jesus to be gone. I want you to be gone, actually. Or at least to be quiet and blend in and not talk about this anymore. I want to eat, drink, and be merry in the ways with the people at the times that I want to, and then I want to go to the heaven of my own choosing my kingdom to come now and then. 
that is an incredibly childish view of life. And that's where the world lives. The world bounces around from fad to fad and cause to cause. We should be honest. We, we should talk to, to our friends who are not Christians and we should say, come on. Can you keep track of what today's cause is? You need a list. All the different ways that the world is, is full of convincing itself that it's, that it's important and, and virtuous and good. It's going to change next week. Well, it'll change. That's an incredibly childish way. There's no root. There's no foundation to this life. That's where the world is. And we can either approach that arrogantly, looking down our nose at them, we can approach it combatively. We want to we fight and pound it home that they're wrong. We can approach it honestly and humbly. Apart from the glorious grace of God in Jesus, that's me. I was right there. Can you remember that still about yourself? You should practice remembering that about yourself. I'm a fool. I want what I want too. Even today I want what I want. Not totally. I'm different. But you, you like me, you like the world, we are all similar in these ways that we have something wrong inside of us. We happen to know something they don't. We have to know the answer to that, the solution to it. And it's at work. It has dawned in us. It is growing. It hasn't dawned and isn't growing in them. But that's the key is the grace of God, not me. I'm the problem just like everybody else is. So I can be arrogant about that. That'd be foolish. I can be combative about it. That'd be foolish. I can attempt to speak to people and say, here, here's life. And what will happen is eventually you'll say like, but what's the point of that? Because nobody, I mean nobody is listening. They want tacos, not turkey. They got a taste for tacos. They like that. They're not listening. They're not. And you know that too. We're not in a period of, of massive revival where you walk down the street and say, Jesus love, and then people become a Christian. We are not in that world right now. Maybe we will be, but we're not right now. You know you, that you're the only one in your office who knows Jesus, and nobody else in your office gives a rip. That's how it feels. What they want is for you to not talk about any of this. And if you do, end of the verse, violence will come your way. That's the truth, too. So why bother? Why continue on? Well, the very last sentence. Jesus ends with what may seem like a proverbial throwaway. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What's he getting at here? Well, we have lots of sayings that are similar to this. Proof's in the pudding. All comes out in the wash. We're just talking about Something that doesn't appear obvious right now, but give it a little bit of time, and it'll show. The reason that we press on, the reason that we continue with the great purpose is not because obviously everybody is receiving it. We cannot judge the value of what we are doing by the reception that it gets in the world. We have to judge the value of what we are doing by the authority of the one who assigned it and the promise from him that there is more to the story that will be seen. It might seem that nobody in the office is listening, that nobody has a taste for this, but God opens the eyes of people and gives them a desire, gives them a, a, a wondering, gives them a longing. It, it might seem that, that nobody cares, but some do. The kingdom is advancing. 
Jesus even right now is spreading the kingdom to every tongue and tribe and nation. People are seeing because God opens eyes. People are coming to taste because God gives new tongues. This will be shown in the end, and it'll be shown even before the end. As people watch how we live, how we walk, how we, how we live in the grace of God, and how we speak of it. Jesus uses that. That's why he puts you here. That's why he gives you a spirit and assigns you. Don't judge by what you can see. Judge by what is unseen but promised. It will be seen eventually in the end. He's given us a purpose. He's given us his spirit. And he calls us to trust him. To embrace his calling on us and to show this grace to other people. Even if it seems like they're not interested. We've got to do it carefully and graciously and kindly. But we've got to do it. It's our purpose. Let me pray. Lord, will you help us to be faithful laborers to you in whatever way is appropriate for each one of us. Maybe what would be helpful, Lord, is for you to give us just a glimpse of the end, just a, a glimpse of some of your work. You know best. So will you speak and will you help us to be faithful with this great moment that you have put us in? As we interact with the world that apparently stands against us, will you make us patient and gracious and humble and full of great confidence in you? Your ways are not our ways, but your will is being done. Your kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for letting us be a part of that. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.